This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Canon Stephen Gautier and is from the ninth Sunday after Pentecost. Today is July 17th. If you haven't checked your calendar, you don't have to do so. That's it. We're a little past the halfway point in summer. Think about it. Earlier this morning, we had one of those summer thunderstorms. It's classically summer. A lot of us have come back from vacations. People are currently on vacation. People are ready to go on vacation. It just doesn't get more summer than this. So what better time for a Christmas analogy? Okay. We're going to go with it. Yes. And the analogy is buying Christmas presents for people. What do you think about it? Don't we all know in our lives there are some people who are really, really a problem to buy presents for? They are inscrutable. It's really hard to figure out what they want. You know these people. Or it's easy to find out what they want. They just have really expensive taste. But it's really hard to please them. You don't know what they want. You don't have what it takes to do it anyway. Other people are your sort of dream people to shop for. You know exactly what they want, and it's always something you can afford. So the good news for us, we know in the gospel, is that God is like that second type of person. You know, sometimes we act like, gee, God is mysterious. What does he want? Nothing could be simpler. There is no mystery at all about what God wants from us. And the good news, it's in the power of each and every one of us to give it to him. That's great news. The gospel today warns us we often forget that simple fact. We often get distracted and forget what God really wants. So our goal today is to answer four questions. The first question is going to be, What is it that God actually wants from me? At the end of the day, cutting through all the things, what does God actually want at the end of the day? Second, how do I give that to him? I said it's in everybody's power, so how do I go about and actually give that to him? The third thing is, what if I somehow have sort of lost my focus along the way? Has that happened? And finally, the fourth question, if I did, or if I, in the process of doing that, How do I find my way back? So again, what does God really want from me? How do I give that to him? Have I lost my focus somehow along the way? And if so, how do I find my way back? Well, let's start by looking at today's gospel passage, the story of two sisters, Mary and Martha. And first, some background. They lived with their brother Lazarus very close in a town called Bethany. It's very close to Jerusalem, about two miles out. So it's really, uh, think of the uh, carol stream of Jerusalem. Okay, and you're there. Okay. The three were close, personal friends. They didn't just know Jesus. They were close, personal friends. How do we know that? Well, Lazarus, we find in a later episode, dies. And Jesus comes. He misses the funeral. He arrives late. And he asks to go see the grave. And Jesus, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He wept so hard that people said, look at how much he must have loved him. So these were close, personal friends. Moreover, their home was a very convenient place. You know, people were always wanting Jesus. He cured people. He had teachings. Everybody wanted a piece of Jesus. And so there's sometimes, sometimes almost impossible to get away. It talks one time, he said they, didn't even, they couldn't even find time to eat. They couldn't let people get around and have time to eat. So this, the home at Bethany was a place Jesus could just get away. Frankly, a place where Jesus could just be Jesus. It was a very special place to him. Now, also, I want you to know one other thing that's really important to this story. We know that Martha is a woman of truly monumental faith. To me, one of the great heroes of the entire New Testament. Now, why do I say that? I don't say that lightly. 
What happens? We talked about her brother's death. Jesus appears late after his brother's already buried. He's actually, uh, the, he's actually been buried for four days. The deep process of decomposition has already started. They point that out to us. Jesus finally arrives. I want to read this passage to you. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Her brother has been dead for a day. Even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to her, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Right there at her brother's grave, he says, okay, she said, do you believe this? And she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. It doesn't get better than that. We talk about Peter's confession of faith. In situation was nothing like this as far as difficulty. Here in the face of death itself, the face of hopeless, decomposing body, the orthodox icons, by the way, of the resurrection of the raising of Lazarus, always have somebody next to it holding his nose to point out that fact to us. So um, I'm not kidding you. It's, it's a standard on, on the icons. So woman, I want you so we don't misunderstand this story. Martha does not have faith issues. She's a remarkable model of faith. So in today's passage, what happened? Jesus stops by for a visit. He gets away, visits his friends. However, instead of actually catching up with Jesus, visiting with them, she gets all involved, Martha gets all involved in the dinner preparations. And she, I mean, really gets involved. And to the point that she's ignoring Jesus, she's busy with these things, and she's feeling resentment. I've got to confess, I feel this, I have this experience. I'm the dish guy in our home. And on Christmas, when I have the families there and four grown boys, you know, et cetera, and, you know, they're like beached whales after eating, and I'm sitting here with mountains of stuff, and they say, you know, guys, there's no special city ordinance about putting dishes in the dishwasher, et cetera. But my irony goes unrequited. But in any event, I understand that resentment. Come on already. So Martha basically says, Jesus, come on. Tell, your, tell my sister to come in here and help. Now, the funny thing is we know the Gospels so well, the people who don't know them, people are newer to the faith, and we're blessed with so many of them here at Res. you see something that nobody else sees. You see how the story is supposed to end is Jesus should tell her, to, yeah, you need to help out. It would be the right thing to do. Show love for your sister. Help her out. He does nothing of the sort. What does he do instead? Jesus surprises us. He gently reminds Martha that she seems to have lost sight of why he's there. He's there to see them. Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. Only one thing is necessary. That was the one and only thing that really mattered. He was there to see them. Martha, somehow in all of her business, busyness had forgotten that. Mary remembered. That's why Jesus said, Mary has chosen the better part. So we said our first question, what does God want from each one of us? I promise you it's no mystery. And we can do this intuitively. The Bible teaches us that God is love, right? We're told that in the Bible. Well, if that's all we knew about God, we could already have the answer. Because I ask you, it says, for example, we say in our Eucharistic prayer, in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. That's who God is. When you really some, love somebody, when you're in love, when you love somebody, 
What do you want? There's only one thing you want. Nothing else. You want them to love you back. Right? You fall in love with something, all you really care about is for that love to be returned. You don't want anything more, you can't accept anything less. It's that simple. God is love, He loves us, and all He wants is for us to return that love. Nothing more, nothing less. So we said our second question is, how do I give love God that one thing He wants from me? How do I actually respond to His love? I think our problem is we tend to think of love as an emotion, and there's an element of that, certainly. Jesus wept. He loved Lazarus. But it's much more than that. Love is something we do. Mother Teresa loved to say love has to be put into action. It's, not sub it's subjective and objective. It has to be put into action. The Bible is nothing more than the story of how do we know we love God? He didn't have to tell us. We can see it throughout the whole Bible story. Why did he create the world? Simply to share his love with us. When we mess everything up and say no, what does he do? He comes here and gives his own life for us. It's the whole story of we know God loves us. He didn't just tell us that. We can see it. It's the story of everything he does. And you know, our own lives do that same thing. It's not what we say. Our own lives are our living testimony to how we respond to God's love. It doesn't matter what we say. It's what we do. You know, how do we actually in our life? Jesus says you can tell a, 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 tree, a tree by its fruit. You can tell what kind of tree it is. He says our loves are a testimony of how we respond to that love. Now, sometimes we get discouraged and we would say, gee, I know there's some people are really in a great position to really respond to God. I mean, people, for example, in clergy and things and pastoral work, et cetera, all day they can do these kind of things. But I have a regular job, and frankly, it's not the most exciting thing in the world. Boy, it must be nice to have that kind of situation. But the good news is what we do makes no difference at all. You see, it's not what we do. It's the love we put in the doing. It's not what we do. That doesn't make any difference, whatever it is. When God has to do it, the fact that we do it and we do it in love, that's the only thing that counts. You know, Mother Teresa loved to say, we, can, we can't all do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. Everyone is equally positioned to give God. There's one thing God wants of each one of us that no one else in the universe can give us, our love. And that's all it is. It's equal for everyone. It doesn't matter what we do. It's the love we put in the doing. We have a wonderful version of that. Remember the story of the widow? There's a story of Jesus is hard to impress. He's often talking, you of little faith. But sometimes he gets excited about what he sees. He's with his disciples at the temple, his apostles at the temple, and they have a line of donors. You know, I guess they're capital drive, right? They have a line of donors. And there's a widow who simply has two coins to point in. And Jesus gets excited. He said, look at that woman. He said, she's given more than everybody else here. It's important. He didn't say why that was sweet. He said she gave more. Because why? She gave everything. You know, she had put more love in the doing. So even the poorest person could be the most generous. All of us are in a position to respond to God lovefully. There's a flip side to that. It doesn't matter what we do, how good it is. If we don't do it with love, we're wasting our time. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I give away everything I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned but don't have love, I gain nothing. That's a serious warning. He said, you can give everything you have. You could actually be a martyr to faith. If you don't have love, you're wasting your time. So God is sort of like a parent. Again, it's not what we do. It's like all of us who have been parents, raised children, have on your refrigerator door all their little artwork. 
The reason you put that artwork up there isn't that you think they're the next Rembrandt. It's not the artist, it's not the art, it's the artist. The reason we treasure it is because the love put into it. That's all that God sees. So our third question is, how do we know if I might have lost my focus like Martha? How do we know if I might have gotten a little lost along the way? When we do something out of love, we're always focusing on the person we love. Now, I've been a road warrior. I'm a CPA. I've been a road warrior for like 30 years. I spend a lot of quality time in airports. I mean a lot of quality time. And one thing is amazing. You see it all the time. Sort of makes you jealous in a way sometimes is you see young couples and things, and it's like there's no one else in the universe. With all of it's amazing. They're just looking here like they're in another place. You expect a spotlight to come down on them. They're the only other. That's what love looks like. They're, that's all they see is each other. That's what love looks like. Like two lovers in an airport, they have eyes for nobody else. But we're not acting out of love. It's really easy to get distracted. We're looking all around us, right? We're looking at everything else. So instead of looking at the person we love, we start actually looking at a whole lot of other stuff too. Notice in today's gospel, Martha is not looking at Jesus. What she's looking at is what her sister is or is not doing. She's completely lost. She's a, her guest, the person she loves, is sitting here. Her whole focus is sideways, not ahead of her. Now, this is a very important spiritual message here. Remember in the, in the 19th century, in coal mines, the story goes, is you could have very dangerous things with oxygen going out, and you wouldn't notice it, and you could trap down there, and you could suffocate. So they would have canaries, right? Canaries would be the sign because they were very sensitive. They'd be the first to go to tell you, we have a problem. There is a canary in our spiritual mine shaft and that's resentment. Resentment is the sure sign that we're looking sideways, that we're not looking at the one we love, we're looking everywhere else. That's the sure sign. It's infallible. Jesus warned us of this danger in a parable. He had some, talks about some workers, and he said there's a guy who goes out and hires people, you know, work in his vineyard. He goes out in the morning and hires some people, but he needs more people, and they're just not there. So he keeps coming back, and every time he finds people, he brings them in. And he agreed with people at the beginning of the day, here's a wage. And it was a very generous wage. Everyone agreed, this would be great. And even at the end of the day, like 4 o'clock, he's still hiring some people. So at the end of the day, what happens is he actually pays them all the same amount. So what's the reaction of the people who would work longer in the day? They were bitter and resentful. This is so wrong. This is so unfair. And he points out, how is this unfair? I gave you a generous wage. How does my generosity constitute unfairness? Instead of looking at the generosity that I gave to you, all you're looking at is comparing to others. But I think our worst example of this, of how bad resentment can come, is the table of the prodigal, parable of the prodigal son. We'll talk about that later uh, in, in, in Luke. But we all know the basic story. There are two sons and their father. The younger son bought out a share. It's a family business. He buys out a share of the business and goes off and wastes the money, leaving the elder son with his father. He comes back, and the father is reconciled. Now, we like to think of the, old, the younger son as sort of abandoning his father and going off. But if you look at the story, it's the older son who somehow had really checked out long ago. What does the older son say when his brother comes home? He looks angrily at his father and said, All these years I've slaved away for you and you've done nothing. Whoa, where did that come from? That wasn't just today. There was a bitter resentment. He wasn't working out of his love for his father. All it was. By the way, he wasn't bothered by the fact he got a double inheritance simply by being born first. He reconciled himself to that. Okay. And look at the resentment when the brother comes home. He can't even see. He, instead of acting in love for his father, he can't see his father. 
Here's what I mean. The father says, son, I'm always with you. Everything I have is yours. What are you complaining about? Everything I have is yours. He can't even see his father. And worse, he can't even see his brother. He says, this son of yours. What does the father, he says, this is your, your brother. He can't see his own father. He can't see his own brother. This is what happens. This is what resentment does. We start looking around and making those comparisons. Here's something to remember. Love always brings us closer to God and others. Always, no exceptions. Anything in love always brings us closer to God and others. Resentment does exactly the opposite. It's the infallible sign that we've taken our eyes off God. This is no longer about serving God. This is about us. We have no doubts about it. So, our last question, if I find myself sounding more like the older brother, how do I find my way back? From, I think for most of us, that probably describes us pretty often. That, you know, we're, quote, serving God, but we have a lot of resentment looking sideways. But what I like is the story of Peter walking on the water in Matthew 14. I love this. I love, who, what's that not to love in Peter? You know, Jesus is walking in the water. Who would think of something like this? Peter says, hey, let me come out and walk to you. And Jesus says, sure. He says, come on up. And Peter actually walks on the water just like Jesus. It's amazing. He walks on the water. But we know Peter ends up wet, so what goes wrong? It says he saw the wind. He saw the wind. Well, how did he see that? He was no longer looking at Jesus. He wasn't looking at coming to Jesus. He started looking around him. And suddenly, he starts sinking into the water. He'd taken his eyes off Jesus. It wasn't about Jesus anymore. It was about my experience. It wasn't about coming to Jesus. It was about my walking on the water. He begins to sink. But here's the important message for us. What did Peter do then? Well, I'll tell you one thing he didn't do. He didn't try to swim for shore. He didn't even try to swim back to the boat. He did exactly the right thing. He cried out to Jesus for help. Lord, save me. And what was the result? I love this verse. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. It was prayer calling out to Jesus that refocused his eyes on Jesus. Now, one of our problems, I think, is that we don't know what prayer is. We think prayer is what we, we pray here, and that's true, that's prayer, but prayer is much broader. Prayer is defined, the theologians define it as the lifting of the mind and heart to God. Sometimes we do that with words. Sometimes we don't do it with words. It's the lifting of the, of the mind and the heart to God. Now, here's something about our lives. Martha was doing things that had to be done. So, if we're depending on having to sort of look around those things or wait till later to see Jesus, we're missing the point. Somehow, we have to see Jesus through those very things, in the midst of them. Not around them, not later, right now in the midst of all those things. And the way to do that is we have to turn those things into a form of prayer. And the beautiful promise Jesus makes, he tells us, he says, anything you do for someone else, I will take it as if you've done it directly for me. Remember the sign of the judgment? He says, you gave me a drink when I was thirsty. I, I had nothing to wear. You gave me something to wear. You know, I was a prisoner. You visited me. Anything we do, Jesus said, I will take it personally as done to me. Now, there's a, a religious order, uh, very important in the, in the Western church, called the Benedictines. They're the great monastery. They're very big on the evangelization of Europe. And they have a motto called pray and work. And 
there's something about that model that's not obvious to us. In Latin, it's a play on words that's really powerful. In Latin, the word pray is ora. The word for work is labora. It's basically the same word extended. Ora et labora. And so the idea of the motto is we move our prayer beyond just our words into our whole life. Yeah, the prayer that we pray with our lips suddenly becomes everything we do in our lives. We pray, and then we pray again differently by the things we do. We turn our whole life into prayer. Again, prayer is just, uh, work is just another form of prayer, you know, prayer by other means. We actually serve God through what we do instead of looking. We see him in the moments of those, that service instead of looking around or waiting. Even the smallest task, uh, you know, of person is, is, is precious to God, who's always right there to receive it. Now our conclusion then is, we're told that only one thing is necessary. Again, there's no question about it. The only thing God has ever wanted of any of us, before when he saw us, before there was a world, the scriptures tell us, the only thing he ever wanted was to love us and to have us love him in return. No mystery to this. All of us can do that by simply saying yes in the actions of our lives, turning our lives into a yes to God through everything we, we do. This brings us closer to God and our neighbor. It's something every one of us can do because God doesn't care what we do. It's the love we put in the doing. The problem wasn't what Martha, what Martha was doing. It was how she was doing it. She was doing good things, but she was actually allowing those things to get in the way, to be a barrier. Now, how can I know if I'm doing the same thing? We said, again, the unmistakable evidence that we're not focusing on God, that our life is not prayer, is resentment. You know, I love the passage in Genesis. After the fall, God comes, it says, in the cool of the day in the garden. And what does he say? He calls out to Adam, where are you? Because Adam was normally walking. Where are you? And Adam was hiding. He says, why are you hiding? He says, I'm naked. What's the very next thing God says? Who told you you were naked? How would you know that? You must have eaten of the tree. The same thing is true of us, isn't it? When we become resentful, God can ask us, how do you know that these people aren't pulling their weight? You're not looking at me. How do you know that? You're looking somewhere else or you'd never have known this. So what do I do if I find I'm starting to sink under the waves of resentment? Or even worse, maybe I'm already under the waves. I'm, I'm sinking down. Like Peter, the answer is to call out for help, to ask God to convert our work itself into a prayer. If we make our work a part of our prayer, if our whole life becomes prayer, we'll keep our eyes solidly fixed on Jesus. And then by God's grace, like Peter, we will walk on the water to meet him. And if we do so, like Mary, we will have done the one thing that's necessary. We would truly have chosen the better part. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.